You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over kings. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Hello, listeners. Whatever time of day or night it is that you're listening to this show, and it could be any time of day or night because we are blanketing the airwaves all over the world on the Internet and on terrestrial radio, welcome to House of Cards. I am Ashley Adams. Today or tonight or this morning's or overnight show, whatever the case may be for you, is an extraordinary one. We have probably one of the best known and certainly one of the greatest poker players today, to join us. Her name is Annie Duke. She and I are going to talk about her new venture, uh, which is a poker league for professionals, as well as her new book, which uh, I'll let her talk to you about. And then we have got uh, one of the superstars of poker, maybe one of the top two or three poker players in the world today. We're going to talk with Daniel Negreanu, and uh, you don't want to miss that. But uh, we're also going to have a mailbag segment and we look forward to uh, to letting you know what's going on there. So please stay tuned, and we will be back after a quick break. Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards hotline. Comments about the show? Poker questions? You just want us to know about great places to play or you just got bluffed out of a pot? Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards Hotline. Available 24 hours a day. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you can send to having your message played on the air. Hey, you serious about poker? And winning 7-Card Stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-Card Stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. You're listening to the House of Cards. Whoa! I think we got a show. Oh, yeah, we got a show. We definitely got a show. Oh, yeah, there's a show. Hey, it's all about ratings, baby, and we got them. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And just as promised, every so often our show is able to land one of the greatest players in the game. And today is no exception. We have, I think, one of the five greatest players in poker today, probably one of the five best-known poker players, Annie Duke. Annie is joining us uh, to talk about a number of things, but particularly a new poker league that is forming. Annie, are you there? I am here. I'm blushing, though. (laughs) 
Well, you can't see blushing on the radio, but I, I think it's fair enough to say that you are in the top tier of poker players, both in terms of achievement and reputation. I mean, uh, people, when they think of, if they were to think of one female poker player, they would think of Annie Duke, I think, before any others. And if they were to think of the five greatest poker players today, I, I, think, I don't think I'm being undue in my praise by saying they would put your name up there with, uh, with the very greatest of the great. You, you don't think so? No, I mean, so I, I completely appreciate that, and I think you're probably right about people viewing me, you know, in the public viewing me that way. I, I can name a lot of players who are better players than I am, and I, I really, really look up to them and uh, learn from them and hope to be as good as they are when I grow up. But I, I certainly <laughs> appreciate the accolades. I'm, I'm not going to refuse the flattery, that's for sure. I am curious, so just you touched on it, if you were to name a couple of players that you learn from or have learned a lot from, who would you mention? Well, obviously, I mean, number one on the list is my brother, Howard Letterer. He, you know, I was really apprenticed to him um, as I was learning how to play and, and coming up in poker. And a lot of the way that we think about poker is very similar. We talk about poker, we dissect hands, we bounce things off each other, and we always have. And that's been going on really since I started taking the game really seriously, which was now coming up on 17 years ago, if you can believe it. Um, so he, he's been a big uh, mentor to me. And then, you know, Eric Seidel, for sure, is way at the top of the list. It's people who I've really learned a lot from. Um, you know, I, I actually spend a lot of time, like, I, I like to get drawn to tables with some of the really uh, amazing young up-and-comers as well because just like any game, whether it's tennis or uh, football or, or basketball or whatever it is, the game changes and evolves. And, you know, if you don't change and evolve with the game, you know, you're just going to be left behind and you're going to be a dinosaur. So I enjoy the chance to play with the younger players in terms of what I can, can learn. I remember specifically a couple years ago getting uh, down to heads up with a kid named um, Faraz Jaka, and he, he was coming off a really amazing year with the WPT and got to, to play with him and really saw some very interesting things that he was doing that I, that I think were more common among the younger players and really felt like the experience playing him really – improved my game, and, and I, it happened to be right before the NBC heads up. And I really credit a lot of the experience that I got playing him, him heads up to my victory um, at that event. So, you know, I really try to watch and learn from everybody, whether they're younger than me or older than me or new to the game or whatever it is. I try to keep my eyes and ears open. Let me ask you something about that, because I, you know, I talk to a lot of poker players on this show, and... 95% of them, when I press them and ask them what they would attribute their success as professional poker players, what do they think the main ingredient is, they often talk about collaborating and learning from other players. Here's my question to you, Annie. You mentioned this recent experience playing against this young guy and that you definitely learned stuff. Can you put into words something concrete that you actually saw him do or things mm -hmm. that he did that you incorporated into your game when you talk about becoming a better player? Can you think of anything concrete? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that the young kids have, the younger kids have really done is really do some very deep thinking about stack size and relative stack sizes and, and what kind of psychological pressure you can put on another player um, given what their stack size is. And he was, when we were playing heads up, he was just really making some very interesting adjustments in his play depending on what my stack size is, was and understanding the kind of pressure he could be putting on me given the kinds of decisions he could put me to. You know, could he get me 
reasonably to a decision for my whole stack? Did he think that I was willing to put a, get put to a decision for my whole stack? How was he varying his play when my stack was really deep? Um, these are kinds of the kinds of things that they've really put a lot of thought into, and I think the reason why they're they're very thoughtful about it is because a lot of the older players played in a world where you just didn't have deep stack tournaments and you didn't have any deep stack situations. So I think that they were more adept at understanding the kind of pressure you can put on somebody when they're relatively short stacked, meaning, you know, in the 30 big blind range right. or so. But but the the younger players just have had a lot more experience um, sort of growing up in a world where you're very often in situations where you have 300 or, or 400 or 500 big blinds, which was unheard of, um, you know, when the older players were starting. And so I think that they they have some more interesting thoughts on how to play those situations and how to vary those situations. And I found it very helpful to watch how he was reacting to my stack size and how he was sort of playing to his own stack size um, when I was playing to him. And I actually learned a lot from it because, it, it, again, I think it's, it's a new, a little bit of a new view on the world because um, that, that was just never the world when, when most of the older players were really getting most of their experience in. That actually explains a lot. Is there any place where a listener uh, who's hearing this interview could go, either in an online uh, like a VT poker or a card runner, where they can learn some of these skills? Or is it something that really it's so cutting edge you have to play against these people to pick it up? Well, I think that, you know, one of, one of the things for me that I think is really important is you know, I think that a lot of what's out there in terms of teaching poker, <laughs> I think there's two there's two errors in a lot of what's out there. Um, error number one is giving people rules. You know, like oh, oh, you should if you're first in, you should raise. If uh, you raise, you should raise three times the big blind. You should never play this hand in this position. You should only play this hand in, in another position. You should never limp. You should never, you know. And the thing that I say about rule-based learning is that um, the rules will tend to apply pretty well about 80% of the time. But the 20% they don't work, is, is the 20, that's when you go broke. Right? <laughs> that's very and, insightful. And, yeah, and the thing is that there's a reason why three times the big blind is generally correct. There's a reason why entering for a raise is generally correct. But what I would rather do is give people a way to generate those rules for themselves by understanding what the concepts are that are causing people to say three times the big blind, right? Got it. Yes. So. So. So, but then, but then on the on the flip side, you've got a bunch of uh, sites where you can watch players play, right? Yes. So now this is kind of the opposite problem because you're watching the players play, but they're not really giving you any commentary. So they're not giving any, they're not really giving a lot of insight into what they're thinking. You're just kind of like watching somebody do something and you don't really, you can't really necessarily extrapolate like, well, they have this personality or they've been doing this in the past or the other players have been behaving this way or they've had this experience with the other, you know, the kinds of things that are generating their play. So I think you want to come down somewhere in the middle. So now I can toot my own horn and tell you I have a book coming out. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Annie Duke. Hey, you serious about poker? 
then winning 7-card stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-card stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, you'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-card stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash hocradio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. This is, this is the House of Cards. This is your poker education. Let's play some cards. Welcome back, listeners. For those of you who are listening, we are talking with Annie Duke. I was just going to ask you, go ahead, talk about your book. So I've got a book coming out in May called Decide to Great, Play Great Poker, uh, A Strategic Guide to Texas Hold'em. I actually wrote it with a, a great friend of mine named John Borhouse. Uh, oh, I know John. He's awesome. And basically what he did was make it so that uh, people would actually want to read the book. You know, he's such an amazing writer. He wrote all those and killer I, poker books, right? Exactly. And I, I really needed somebody who could make me sound... Um, just a little bit more palatable and digestible to the average reader, right? So, um, uh, um, so basically, uh, the book is sort of a start-to-finish guide uh, to No Limit Texas Hold'em, um, and it starts with how do you make your decisions about what kind of hands you're supposed to play before the flop, what kind of things are generating those decisions, like, you know, position and, and table image and what are you trying to accomplish? How, how do you make your decisions, um, uh, you know, after the flop based on, you know, who's raised and who's not raised? How do you figure out when you're supposed to raise? What's the purpose of raising? You know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and basically what I say in the beginning of the book is if you want a rule or you want a chart, this is a really bad place for you to be. You shouldn't be in this book. <laughs> so they're, they're really, they're, I'm not, you know, there aren't any charts. So, so, you know, the classic thing, I'm sure you've read a lot of uh, poker books, is they always start off with these hand charts. Like, yeah, like poker is blackjack, and you can just follow the rules, and you'll be a winning player. Exactly. And so uh, I have no hand chart in my book anywhere. <laughs> um, and, and that's very much on purpose because I think that, you know, there are certain situations where, it's correct to, for example, raise any hand on the button, and then there's situations that you get into where you might be raising only 50% or 40% of your hands on the button, and it just really depends on the reactions around you. So basically what I say is, you know, every poker game is different. I don't know what game you're playing in, so I can't really give you a rule, but I'm going to give you the concepts that allow you to create your own rules. And I'm really, as a matter of fact, like really proud uh, of this book because it's like 400 pages of my soul. <laughs> really? I mean, your soul. So yeah. you put a lot of personal stuff in here, not just how to think oh, about no, poker. It's my personal thoughts on poker. And, you know, that's, um, 
you know, it, it feels a little bit like exposing yourself, you know, because you're letting people into sort of what your thoughts are on poker and how to play well. But um, I'm actually really proud of what's on the page, and I'm extremely excited for it to come out because I think that it is a very different approach to poker. It's very much a decision-making approach, understanding what the decision-making problem is and understanding how you create and navigate um, the decision trees that you have to make uh, when you're playing a hand so that hopefully you can go out and, and adjust to whatever situations come your way. Sounds like a thinking person's guide to the game, a way of thinking about poker uh, strategically as opposed to just following rules. It's coming out when? In That's May? Exactly. In May, and it's going to be with Huntington Press. And Huntington Press does uh, the Kill Phil and Kill Everyone book, so I think they're going to be like an amazing partner because they really understand how to market poker books. You know, those books obviously do very well in the space. I I absolutely hope so. I think that uh, we've had a dearth of really good poker books, I think, in the last few years because a lot of publishers are afraid of what they see as a declining market for yeah. poker books. So, you know, we were flooded I, with I them. Think that's true. Yeah. You and, know, I think that, that really since Harrington, which was, you know, quite a while ago at this point, I don't, I don't really think anything much has come out. And um, so hopefully people are ready for something new and a new way to think about it. You know, Harrington is obviously extremely mathematically based. Um, and uh, my book is very decision-making based, so it's, it's a different approach. It often comes to the same answers, obviously, as it should, but but I approach it from from um, sort of a different uh, ethic, basically. And I think a lot of our listeners associate you with tournament poker. What do you do as far as cash games these days, and what do you do uh, as far as playing online, if at all? So it's very funny that people associate with tournament poker tournament poker, I think it's only because of the day and age that we live in. Yes, I think so. um, Because uh, for the first almost decade of my poker career, I played almost no tournaments whatsoever. <laughs> um, I played cash games, uh, you know, eight hours, ten hours a day, just like every other player out there uh, to support my family and to make my money. And um, it was only when the television came around that I really started putting much, much more focus on tournaments. So I would have, you know, if you ask me, like, am I a cash game player or a tournament player, I, I actually would more define myself as a cash game player, even though I haven't been playing a lot of cash games recently. So it's just very funny that you say that. Yes. Um, lately, my poker playing has been pretty much zero. Uh, I've been focusing on this new venture and launching this new league with uh, Jeffrey Pollock and our partners, and, and really that's been taking almost all my attention. Um, that being said... Uh, in about a month from now, um, I will be absolutely vigorously defending my NBC uh, heads-up title, and then I'm going to be heading up to Bay 101 to, to do Shooting Stars, and I am planning to play a pretty full slate of WSOP tournaments. So um, I will be back on the circuit momentarily, but uh, as of right now, um, I don't know when I would fit in the poker playing right now <laughs> I'm pretty busy with this other thing. Well, let's talk about your new venture. I, you know, some of it that follow what comes out on the wire heard something about this, that you and Pollock were doing this new poker league. Tell us about it. Sure. Um, you know, I think this is an idea that, um, that you know, Jeffrey and I have been batting around for, for a while. Um, this kind of idea that, you know, there, there's some amazing, uh, incredible poker properties out there that are really focused on, mostly on the amateur um, you know, I think that they're, they're great tournaments, you know, having 8,000 people in a tournament with the kind of prize pools that the WSOP generates is really spectacular, and um, I wouldn't want it any other way, you know. But at the same time, 
um, you know, when you think about a game like golf, for example, um, it's very similar to poker in a lot of ways, right? Everybody plays it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure that you know most of your friends probably pick up a golf club and go play, right. um, much like poker. Um, uh, you know, it's an extremely popular sport across the nation, but when you turn on the TV, you're not watching everybody play golf. You're watching the best golfers play golf. Um, and, you know, you, you could sort of imagine uh, what would the Masters be like or the U.S. Open be like if um, anybody got to play that and, and you sort of had, you know, seven or 8,000 scratch golfers uh, playing the Masters and, you know, w- would you be seeing a lot of the pros make it through to the final rounds? And the answer is probably not because, you know, you'd have a lot of scratch golfers who were golfing the round of their life. Um, so we, we sort of looked at that golf model and, and we said we feel like that that's the piece that's missing from the poker landscape um, is, you know, the home audience being able to watch the, the best in the game uh, of live tournament poker being able to play against each other. And it, it seems to me that that's something that could coexist very nicely with, with, with the properties that are already on TV. Um, so the idea was, you know, wouldn't it be nice to create a league where, you know, the pro, instead of being the exception, was the rule, you know, that was about both the pros that you already know and the pros that you should know. Uh, and that was really what the genesis was. So we had been batting that around for a while, and, um, you know, Jeffrey obviously left the WSOP about a year and a half ago, and at that time I think that he was uh, really sort of looking hard at himself as to whether uh, he wanted to stay in poker or not or, or go sort of more broadly back into sport. He had obviously not come from poker to the WSOP, he had come from NASCAR and NBA, and uh, his background was much more in, in sort of across the board in, in sport, and he was tr- sort of trying to decide. And I think that in the end, um, he just decided there was a little bit you know, more that he wanted to do in poker, and he felt like this was something that really uh, was sort of the natural extension of what he had done um, at the WSOP, where I think that he was very much considered uh, a player's commissioner and someone who really, really was player-friendly and recognized the value of the pros, and I think that he wanted to sort of continue that legacy. Um, and, you know, so that's we kind of got together and, and uh, you know, basically designed, you know, and we're the architects of, of the new league, which we're very excited about. When is it launching and how many players will it include? So um, the first event is going to be in August. Um, uh, we have an amazing partner in the Palms Casino. I think that they're going to be a, a great partner because uh, they really understand celebrity. They really understand television. Uh, but at the same time, they're, they're a property that doesn't really have a big footprint in poker. And um, I think they're really looking to grow their poker brand. And, and I think that that's going to make it a, a, a very good, uh, even, uh, you know, two-way, two-way, hand-in-hand partnership. Um, as far as the uh, pros are concerned, we're looking for very specifically the, the best live tournament players in the world. We're putting on live tournaments. So, so uh, for obvious reasons, we're interested in the ones that are good at that. Sure. Um, and, you know, we're, we're shooting around 200. But, but that being said, the qualification criteria are completely objective, uh, based on historical results, not on an invitation committee or, or my opinion of who's good or anything like that. And so uh, it looks like the math is spewing out, um, you know, a, a, around 220, um, which is fine. So, so we sort of went in with this idea that we're going to shoot, you know, for, for 200, and it looks like we're probably going to end up with about 220, um, which is great. 
Uh, and I'm really, uh, you know, I, obviously I know what the qualification list looks like, and, and it's an amazing list. It, it really, I think, uh, captures sort of the whole landscape and, and demographic of the poker community now. You know, it's, obviously there's, there's a lot of the names that you know, um, but there's a lot of amazing young players who really got their genesis in Internet poker and have made uh, a really smooth and successful transition into live poker. And uh, there's a lot of young kids on the list, and I was very happy to see that they were, they were falling out of the data as well. So a couple of questions. First, the money question, which to me is the one big obstacle that poker has yet to cross, which is that tournaments not be player-funded but sponsor-funded. How will mm-hmm. the prize pools be generated? So, uh, you know, I think the interesting thing with poker, uh, and this is where it does differ from a game like golf, is that I think poker plays very differently when it's a free roll. Um, I think that one of the main aspects of, of, of poker is that the chips have to mean something. Otherwise, the play gets distorted. So I actually don't really see uh, a future where the prize pools are completely created by sponsors. Now, that being said, a sponsor might put up the, the entry fee for a player, certainly. But, but I think that the players have to have bought in um, in order for, for the play to, to really be true and, and honest. You know, I mean, and I don't. Well, mean wait a second, Annie. Anything. I'm confused. If yeah. the sponsor can put up the entry fee, that's what we're talking about. Well, what I mean, but but there's a difference between there being a prize pool and people just kind of sitting down to play. Whereas in the case of uh, in the case of a sponsor putting up the pri- the money specifically for a player, that would actually tend to be in lieu of of compensation. So the player, it would matter to the player. You see what? I, so so in other words, you want you want the result and the outcome to really matter to the player. And in order to do that, I think there has to be a buy-in, right? So so there is going to be a buy-in for the players, but that being said, um, we're doing a couple things along the lines of what you're talking about. The first thing is that the, the players will be playing without rake. And that's actually pretty significant because, as you know, rakes are, sure. are around 6%, um, so they're getting returned the fees. There, there is no fee for them. But aside from that, there's also um, seven figures uh, in overlays across the first four regular season events, and then it culminates in, in a million-dollar uh, league championship event. Um, so there, we're, we're adding a tremendous amount of money um, across the season to the prize pools, and we're, and we're waiving the fees for the players. So. Uh, we are creating actually a lot of give back. I see. So it would be um, much better. Then, then there's other what? It will be much better for the player than the standard tournament. Well, I think that because we can. Yes. You know, um, because we, we're limiting it to 200 players, and we know who they're who they are. So there's no 201st player that we're forcing to play rake, pay rake. You know, so right. we can sort of treat everybody the same. And the the other thing is that we have a business model that allows us to support that and and to not make money from the fees. Um, you know, and then we're also going to have a lot of other benefits for the players, which will include participation in, in many of the revenue streams that, that the, the league is uh, uh, creating. So, so it's just um, I think that we're trying to view the players uh, much more in a part, as a partner in the process, uh, look at them as our talent, um, and basically treat them as, as such and, and as the elite uh, individuals that they are who, who really have achieved the top levels of excellence in, in the craft. Well, I think that's great, and I hope that it succeeds. I'm rooting for it. I hope that it will come to the East Coast at least eventually. I know you've said it's at the Palms. Do you have any plans to have at least one of the events out in Connecticut or New Jersey or someplace out in the East Coast, or is it all going to be pretty much based in the West Coast? Well, our plan for the first season, just, you know, I think along the lines of um, 
this is uh, a startup and uh, we'd like to sort of keep it small and simple uh, the first season is we're, we're going to do all of our events at the Palms the first oh. season. We're limiting it to four events for the first season with the fifth um, championship event. But we obviously would love to expand not just to the East Coast, but, you know, to other places outside of the U.S. as well eventually. Sure. Um, I think that we would like to keep it, you know, well-controlled uh, and smaller in scope, um, you know, for our first season. Um, but but absolutely, we, we fully intend to end up uh, expanding the footprint. Do you have a television network signed? Um, we are, uh, we'll be making a, a fantastic announcement about television in the, in the next couple months, so uh, we're excited about it. Well, I hope you come back on here to let us know when you can announce it. And I also hope, Annie, we, we've got to wrap this up, but I hope you'll come back to talk about your book when it is actually out on the stands. I know that our listeners will love to hear more about it and about you, and you're always welcome to come. You've been a great guest already. Um, Anything else that you want to add before we close? No, just thank you for the opportunity to come back and talk about my book when it comes on and and to come back and, and, uh, uh, you know, talk more as we have more announcements about the league and, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to let everybody know about what's going on. Great, Annie. You're a great guest, and I appreciate you coming on. That's Annie Duke, who is uh, starting a new poker league with Jeffrey Pollack and soon will be uh, having her book, Decide to Play Great Poker, out on the newsstands. Thanks for joining us, Annie. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. Hey, you serious about poker? Then winning 7-card stud by Ashley Adams is a must-have for stud players of all levels. In winning 7-card stud, the World Series of Poker Veteran takes you through a series of lessons and strategies designed to make you a better player in all phases of your game. The techniques of betting, what cards to play, how to read the other players, the art of bluffing, You'll learn to master them all. Winning 7-Card Stud by professional poker player Ashley Adams. Available at Amazon.com. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams, professional poker player, author, and host of House of Cards. You can all, wherever you're listening to our show, we're now blanketing the United States. You can send in your questions or comments about the show to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash hocradio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC Radio. Hey, this is Dave Weishattel from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of August 29th, 2011. Well, New Jersey State Senator Ray Lesniak is going to try it again. Last week, Lesniak introduced a new bill which would allow New Jersey to become the first state to legalize online gambling. The prior bill was vetoed by Governor Chris Christie, who was concerned that gaming groups outside of Atlantic City would become involved in the process. Lesniak claims that he made changes to the new bill that would address those concerns. Good luck, Ray, from all of us at House of Cards. News coming out of the Full Tilt Poker world. The chief marketing officer of Pocket Kings, the holding company of Full Tilt Poker, Lothar Rensselaer, is stepping down as of September 13th. Presently, Full Tilt is involved in a class action suit which was brought in June of this year in which several Full Tilt pros were named. Several of these players are seeking a dismissal from the case through motions filed last week. 
And finally, the Bellagio Bandit just got sentenced to 3 to 11 years for stealing $1.5 million worth of chips. On December 14th, Anthony Carleo, dressed completely in black with a full motorcycle helmet, went to the Bellagio Craps Pit area, grabbed a large amount of chips, then took off on his motorcycle. He also admitted doing the same thing at the Sun Coast Casino, grabbing over $18,000. Hey, some free legal advice? Ocean's Eleven is only a movie. Don't try and rip off a casino. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation? Send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow House of Cards on Twitter at HOC Radio. Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards hotline. Comments about the show? Poker questions? You just want us to know about great places to play or you just got bluffed out of a pot? Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards hotline. Available 24 hours a day. By leaving a message with House of Cards, you can send to having your message played on the air. You're listening to the House of Cards. Whoa! I think we got a show. Oh, yeah, we got a show. We definitely got a show. Oh, yeah, there's a show. Hey, it's all about ratings, baby, and we got them. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And just as promised, we have maybe one of the two or three greatest players of poker alive today. It's our pleasure to have Daniel Negreanu, Kid Poker, join us on the phone. Daniel, are you there? I am here. Great. Uh, why don't we just start off, tell our listeners what you were doing when, uh, when we called you. I was actually in the middle of a hand. I deuced three hearts, playing 100, 200, no, and hold them on Poker Stars. Now, is that generally what you're doing these days or have you spent most of your time in tournaments how do you divide up your time well the last few days i've sort of had the i had the online poker bug and i've been playing a lot um in the bigger game here but uh you, you know generally speaking um i don't play that much online i usually just play all the big tournaments uh you know around the world i see um i was just trying to think what would be of most interest to our listeners of course you have so many things you could tell us that i'm sure our listeners would be interested in but why don't you for the benefit of those that aren't familiar with your bio give us a brief history of how you came from being a toronto kid to being um one of the greatest poker players around today what was the path well i mean it really started as a teenager i used to play pool played snooker back then in toronto and through that i met some guys who started playing some poker in a little house games playing all kinds of wild card games fiery cross all the queen all kinds of stuff and uh you know eventually started playing these little tournaments and you know actually aside from the house games got into tournaments you know and then we saw these tapes for the world series of poker and i was just <laughs> amazed by it you know i remember watching hasmeed desmalchi and hans tuna lund in this epic hand heads up for the championship and thought oh i want to do that and uh, so I started to play more and more. By the time I was old enough to go to Vegas, I started grinding. Back then, it was mostly limit hold'em that I played. And uh, by the time I was 23, I'd been playing the circuit of tournaments for about a year and a half. And uh, my very first event in the World Series of Poker, I uh, ended up winning it at the age of 23. was wow. the youngest ever at the time. Uh, and since then, um, you know, I've continued to grow as a player and 
feel like I'm as good as I've ever been right now. Well, it's great to hear, you know, watching you now, of course, in the old days, I'm 52, and when I grew up with poker, there was no such thing as poker on television, and there was no internet, but now, of course, those of us who are your fans can actually watch you play a lot of the time, and ring games like on Late Night Poker or Poker After Dark or whatever that show was, and then, of course, in the tournaments. And you look so natural and relaxed and easygoing and almost uh, like you're having too good of a time. Has it always been that way for you, or did you develop into that player, but did you start out more serious about the game? No, it was always why. I mean, that's just part of my personality and part of who I am. I mean, when I started playing poker, it was literally as a teenager. We'd have some people over, come in the basement, and uh, it was a bunch of friends. We'd get some beers and we'd, you know, because, hey, we, I come from a liberal family. <laughs> and the drinking age in Toronto in Canada is 19. You know, in, in, in the U.S., you can shoot people with M16 at war at 19, but you're not allowed to have a beer because you're not responsible enough. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> right, you can kill totally people. Different subject. Yeah, right. totally different subject. But, um, but, no, it was always a personable thing. It was always something that, you know, when we started, I always learned that it's important back then anyway different than the online poker world. I think the, the etiquette and stuff like that is kind of lost on a lot of kids online because when you play online, you don't really have to be nice to anyone. But back when I played, you know, there were certain people that were, you know, providers for the game, and you want them to come back, so you want them to have fun. And so it was all part of, like, being a host. You know, they're, they, they're basically paying your bills, and you want to make sure they have a good time while they do it. I agree. That's something that a lot of players, a lot of good players don't realize enough, which is the need to attract and retain providers people that are not necessarily good players why berate them you should be behaving in a way that will welcome them into the game let me ask you this was there a moment when you knew that this was going to be your full-time career there was no going back you made a conscious decision or did you just naturally flow into it and when you won the bracelet you said well obviously now this is what i'm going to do was there a moment when you decided or did it just kind of happen well it's interesting because i remember it was, i was about 22 years old and I'd, basically there was no decision to be made. It was just I woke up one day and realized that I already was a professional poker player, and that's just who I was. It wasn't a case of, like, making a decision, okay, I will now quit my job and start playing poker. I was already living the life of a professional poker player. It was just making the conscious decision to say, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to make my money. I and see. I think I did that around 22, and it was just as really simple as waking up one day and going, yeah, I guess this is what I do for a living. I see. Now, I know that you have had, I, I tried to do a little research on this because I don't watch television regularly, but you've had a couple of protégés that you've had um, develop as players, and that's been one of the things that you've done on television. Did you have anybody that served as your mentor, anybody that helped guide you through the sometimes difficult path of being a full-time pro? Oh, yeah, I think it's important, especially to what, what, you know the time when I grew up. It's, it's easier now. Like all, A lot of these kids, they share information on online poker forums and things like that. But for me, it was, you know, first and foremost, you know, Jennifer Harmon was somebody who was a guide for me who used to help. I used to watch her play in the big game before I did, and I had a chance to really sort of get a feel for everyone played before I risking any money. And aside from that, you know, there was a traveling group of four of us. You know, we were the young guns at the time. It was myself, Phil Ivey, Alan Cunningham, and John Juwanda. And, you know, we would play tournaments together. We'd go to dinner, and then, you know, we'd throw a hand out there to discuss. And, you know, Ivey would say... He would move all in, go crazy. Juwanda would fold. I would talk to the guy and try to figure it out, and Alan would just give us the right answer because he basically <laughs> knew all the right answers. <laughs> That's great. Do you still have a, a posse, so to speak, of other guys or women that you tend to hang out with more than others, or are you just one of a lot of people on the poker circuit, and do you hang by yourself generally when you're not in a tournament or playing? Yeah, I really don't associate myself with too many people. 
it's just like anything, you know, you don't have to like everybody you're involved with working, you know, and there's a small group of people that I do trust, you know, more, you know, Eric Lindgren's a guy who, you know, I talk to a lot. Um, Ivy's a guy I golf with, and, of course, Jennifer's still, you know, a very, very close friend of mine. Um, but outside of, you know, like a core group of, you know, people, I don't, I don't, I'm not the, I'm not the guy who goes to every tournament and hangs at the bar with all the people and does all the schmoozing and stuff. I'm usually more to myself, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't, I, it's not my vibe. I don't enjoy it. I don't like, I, I did enough drinking when I was at 23, 22, <laughs> 24, and partying before tournaments to realize that that's not the best approach. What do you do when you're not playing poker, either live or on the Internet? Do you have a particular way that you like to relax? Do you still shoot pool? Do you golf? What do you do when you're away from the table? Well, golf's a passion. I haven't been able to golf as much as I would have liked. Um, golf, you know, hanging out with friends, playing pool sometimes, just having some drinks at a restaurant, um, you know, going to visit uh, my female friend, and, uh, you know, just um, just living a pretty normal life. You know, I do some other stuff. As well, not besides from playing poker on the business side, you know, involved with Poker Stars and of course Poker VT, my training side. So I keep pretty busy. My, I don't have a lot of free time. So when I do, I like to just veg on this couch that I'm on right now and watch <laughs> a lot of TV as well. I mean, I catch up on a lot of the great series that are out now. Where are you physically? Where do you live? I live here in Las Vegas. Yeah, my favorite place in the world. And when did you move there from Toronto? When you won the World Series event for the first time, or did it take a while before you actually transplanted yourself? It was sort of a, I was always going back and forth. You know, ever since I was about 22, I was going to Vegas, going home, going to Vegas, going home. And then I finally just stayed. Um, it was probably, I made the decision officially um, in the year 2000 to, to just stay. But I'd already been back and forth. I'd already been in Vegas for the most part, um, even before that. I see. I have uh, some serious questions that came from our listeners. A lot of our listeners are younger players. A lot of them really still live at home. They're in their teens or their early 20s. And I, I won't bore you with the specific questions, but generally they're asking the same thing, which is how does somebody know that they're ready? And what advice would you give to somebody who plays and maybe they've been successful online and they've won a few thousand dollars, maybe even built a poker bankroll of ten or 15000 and they think they're ready to quit their job and move out to Las Vegas and be a full-time professional? How would you counsel somebody like that? Well, the first thing I would say is that they don't need to move anywhere. You know, the great thing about poker these days is you can live anywhere in the world as long as you have Internet access. Um, because realistically, you have so much more selection if you go online playing all the games than you would, you know, playing cash games in, in a live casino. Okay. Faster, it's more convenient, you can get more hours in. So, first and foremost, I would say that you don't have to worry about moving anywhere, but before you quit your day job, I would say that you should do this for a, a one to two years, and if after two years you find that you're making more money playing poker than you are working, then I think it's pretty safe to say that you can, you know, you can probably hack it. But I would give it at least a full year of full-time play um, with some sort of a backup, but... Uh, you know, because you know, luck does play a role in the short term. I think that's very prudent advice. And let me ask you something else. I realize this may not be your expertise, but probably since you've been in the poker and the gambling world for as long as you have, you may have some thoughts. How does somebody recognize that they are not just a serious poker player, but that they have compulsive gambling problems? I mean, I imagine you have encountered people that have that problem in this world. Do you have any insights into how somebody can really say, you know, this profession isn't for me. I'm more of a compulsive gambler than I am a serious poker player. Well, see, that's the, you know, I've gotten that question before, and that's the great thing that sometimes the legislators don't understand, that poker is sort of a self-weeding business in that, first first and foremost, 
problem gamblers are generally speaking not going to be attracted to a game like poker. I would say maybe 3% of problem gamblers tops come from poker. The reason for that is is people with that compulsive behavior, they like fast action gratification. That's true. You're not going to get from poker. Poker is more methodical. It's more thinking man's game. Problem gamblers are going to prefer something like blackjack or craps or something that that gets their juices flowing that way. Right. And, you know, if someone's a problem gambler, like, you know, Joel Brunson once, you know, he said this before, he says, he says, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a compulsive gambler. I just happened to figure out something I could beat. <laughs> you know, he loves to play <laughs> poker. But, uh, but the um, the truth of the matter is, is that if you're not winning at poker after a long time, then then obviously it's something that you should probably either a you know do for entertainment with friends and just you know monitor it. Um, but if you're not winning after a couple of years at a at a relatively low limit, then you're probably just not you know intelligent enough to win. So you should probably like look to limit your play. I think that's very sound advice as well. You you touched on uh, political matters, on legislators. What involvement have you had, if any, with the attempts by the Poker Players Alliance, among others, to overturn or to try to restrict the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, the UIGEA? Are you involved in that at all? No, no, that's not. I've, I've got enough on my plate, and there's other people working <laughs> on that, so I don't really have much to add. I'm Canadian. Right. So if it was up to me, we'd change a lot of things. <laughs> There'd be health care for all. One. <laughs> Very good. Well, at yeah. least you have you've embraced one of my most passionate political issues in the United States. Now, do you do you get your own health insurance or do you still you have it like through Canada somehow because you still have roots there? How do you how do you deal with health insurance as an independently employed person? Well, I always you know, in Canada I'm your cover just because it's a country where they take care of everyone much like every other civilized country in the world except for this one. <laughs> right. Um, it's just a fact. I'm not making that up, and I, it sounds really bad. No, it's, it's true. true. I mean, it's, it's true. the only civilized country in the world where there's no tariff on what you can charge for aspirin. I mean, you could charge $400 for a bottle of aspirin, and there's no law against it. Um, it, it it's really just, you know, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. But uh, I actually got health insurance, I don't know, a year ago just for emergency stuff. I'm a pretty healthy guy overall, so I don't need too much, but... Uh, I'm interested to see how things go. It's, it's sad. I mean, I, I see what's happening. I mean, I pay attention to what's happening in in, in politics, and I see that it's just, it just it feels like the whole health care issue is less about helping people and more about uh, controlling the House. You know, the Republicans don't want it to go through because that wouldn't be good for them, and the Democrats are trying to get it through because they feel like it would be good for them. So you have two sides with just, you know, with control and power being at the core ahead, and that's far, far, far more important to them it seems, then, what's best for, for, for the uh, American citizens. Well, I feel very proud that I actually got Daniel Negrano to venture into the murky waters of politics on the air. I think that's very interesting, and I think you and I share a political perspective exactly. Uh, but I, I'm going to move back to poker. You've been playing poker professionally now for, oh, a good 15 years, maybe not quite, but about 15 years or so. Have you noticed at the tournament level that the game has changed much, that the level of competition has changed, especially in the majors from when you started? Immensely, immensely. It's, it's night and day. It's a completely different form of poker. Uh, what we've seen, and I would say even the last three to four years, what we've seen in the last three to four years is like nothing ever before. Uh, poker in 2004, 2005 was much, much easier than it is today. Uh, there's just so many more well-trained minds that um, understand the game better, you know, and, and the thing that I, you know, I had this discussion with Helmuth several times. We had a phone call about it. Um, just the, the strategy that was effective to win in the '90s or '80s or even, you know, the early 2000s is just 
so outdated um, because it's, it's been exploited by, you know, some of the people who have done the math and they've looked at so sort of certain playing styles and they figured out ways to beat it. So you have to continually adapt. And I foresee, you know, in a year from now or maybe like five years from now, um, the game will continue to get tougher. And I like that. It's fun. I, I think it's, you know, it's enjoyable to, uh, to see the game, you know, get to a point where it's much more like chess. So players have to adjust to the game itself. I've also noticed in conversations with some of the tournament pros like yourself that many of them are switching from just playing No Limit Hold'em to playing other games. Have you done that as well? Well, see, I always grew up playing other games. I really never I, – I've always been a fan of eight games. I, I pride myself on being an overall player. Like, you know, when I played cash games at Bellagio, there was always a mix of, you know, horse and some other things like that. So um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, you know, telling the world that poker is not just about no limit hold'em. Uh, the reason I'm playing no limit hold'em right now, frankly, is to work on my game because it's something that I haven't spent enough time on. So by playing against some of the best players in the world, I'll improve there. But in terms of mixed games, I don't feel like I need to improve very much because I feel like I'm good at it. <laughs> what do you think your strongest game is? Well, it's you know I feel like I'm pretty balanced in most of the limit games. Um, you know, but uh, I do find that I feel like I read people and read hands better and stud eight or better than any other game. I see. Well, that's that's my second favorite game. I. I love stud, and I can't stand the fact that you can't get a good stud game in cas- m- most casinos today. It's just much, much harder than it used to be. Uh, do you, what do you think the trend is going to be over the next 10 years for poker? Do you see No Limit Hold'em absolutely eclipsing everything else, or do you see some games emerging and gaining some traction? Well, one thing's for sure. On television, and it's been tried a little bit, no one holds is the only game that's ever going to work on TV, really. It's just the only one that just kind of has the right mix to attract viewers. Um, having said that, what I think most professional players will see that will happen is that, you know, and we were seeing it already with when, when you know, five or six guys, they all get pretty damn good at knowing and hold them. They don't want to play it anymore with each other because, you know, they're just finding it too good. So the only time that they ever play is when I sit down. And uh, <laughs> but, uh, but what, will ha- what happens is now you're starting to see a lot more of them start playing Potlum at Omaha. And also, they're playing eight-game mix. So I think you'll always see that. I think the whole creation, the whole reason that mixed games uh, were born way back in the days when Chip and Doyle really started playing them was that, you know, you had stud players on one side of the room, and you had holding players on the other side of the room. They weren't, you know, and there's not enough of each. They didn't want to play stud, and those guys didn't want to play hold'em. So they said, well, why don't we play stud and hold'em, and we'll play stud eight or better, and we'll play Omaha eight or better, something like that. So essentially what it is, it's the mixed games help to um, keep out the specialists. Because if you're just good at hold'em, you're not going to be able to win at eight-game mix because you have right. to play all the games well. What are the eight games in eight-game mix? I mean, I know the standard horse games. What are the other three? The other three is deuce to seven, triple draw. The other, then there's pot limit Omaha, and then there's also no limit hold'em. So there's eight total. I see. So Padoogie hasn't figured into the mix. Well, no. I mean, you know, when you play cash games at Bellagio or whatever, you know, it's always a weird mix. You might have stud high low regular, ace to five, deuce to seven, no limit. You know, the eight-game mix is what we created for tournaments specifically and also on PokerStars. It's the only site in the world that has an eight-game mix, um, you know, at PokerStars. And I often played 400, 800 game there, too. But, um, you know, that's just kind of the one that we came up that combines limit and, and some no limit as well to, and pot limit to kind of give it an all, all-around feel. And it's, so, it's what's also going to be played at the World Series this year for the Players' Championship. Um. We have only about three minutes left, Daniel, and my producer is asking me to ask you about your experience at the Poker at Stars Millions down in the Bahamas. I think that's what, no, he's asking me about Poker Stars Million Dollar Challenge. Oh, yes, the Poker Stars Million Dollar Challenge. Tell us about that. 
Well, that the success of that show just you know was beyond what anyone ever thought. We we slated it right after the first football game on Fox. The response was incredible. Uh, it ended up being the highest rated poker show ever. Is that uh, right? On, I didn't know on, that. On, on Hulu, it got it was the most popular download on Hulu.com, which is a site where you can watch past shows and uh, especially the final. It was just a storybook ending. We had Mike Kosowski who. He was a 9-11 first responder, was there within two minutes of the first plane hitting, um, you know, helping to rescue people. And he had some physical uh, issues with that, you know, was laid off a little bit. His wife, after working 20 years because the economy was laid off. So he gets this opportunity to be on the show, you know, claws his way to the final to play me head up for a million dollars. And he hits a miracle eight on the river, and it's just the whole place exploded. <laughs> we just had yeah. him as a guest on our show, and it was—he's a wonderful guest. And he said the experience with you was the absolute high point of his life. Um, it was incredible. Well, um, I mean, yeah, and you, you compare that show where you win a million dollars to be on that show to something like Survivor, where you starve for two months, <laughs> an amazing race where you fly around the world, be all these people. He just got on a first-class flight, stayed in a nice hotel, played a little poker, won a million. That's great. Well, you know, that's terrific. What's, we have a minute left. What's next for you? What, are you? what are you doing? What's your next venture other than going and playing tournaments and playing online? Anything else coming up? Well, no, really just a lot of – I mean, I've got some responsibilities. I've got to go to Australia to play the Snowfest EPT event. Oh, and gee, that's that, tough. That'll be fun. But then after that, I'll be doing, you know, a commercial in London, and then I've got to fly to – I might have to fly to New York, do some commentary – possibly, and then i got to play the NAPT. We've got a couple events there, and the schedule just keeps rolling from there. So, um, you know, they got the WPD Championship right on the heel of that, EPT Grand Final, so, and then the World Series right around the corner. No clothing line coming out, no record deals, no uh, no movies? <laughs> yeah, Kid MCD, Kid MCD and Dean Eggs record deal, bringing it to you live from Vegas. What? That's what I'm talking about. Well, Daniel, it's been fun talking to you. Please go back and win a whole bunch of money on Poker Stars, which I know you're good at. And uh, if anything comes up and you want to have it announced around the world on our show, we'd love to have you back on. Okay, sounds good. All right, man. Take care. That was Daniel Negrano. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back right after this. Poker players, listen up. Your right to play poker continues to come under attack. But with over 1 million members, the Poker Players Alliance is dedicated to protecting your right to play this great American pastime. Even if you've never played a hand of online poker, the Poker Players Alliance is fighting for you. No matter where you choose to play, the PPA is working hard to defend you, your rights, and the game of poker. The PPA is making great strides. But we still need your help. We have sent a clear message to lawmakers and others committed to prohibiting your right to play poker. We are organized and we vote. Add your voice to our cause and join the Poker Players Alliance today. Visit www.joinppa.org and become part of the fight to save poker. It only takes a few minutes to make a difference. The Poker Players Alliance, fighting to protect your freedom to play the game we love. Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards hotline. Comments about the show? Poker questions? You just want us to know about great places to play or you just got bluffed out of a pot? Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards hotline. Available 24 hours a day. 
by leaving a message with House of Cards you can send to having your message played on the air. This is the House of Cards. You got a gamble to win, boys and girls. With Ashley Adams. Hogan! Is that the king? Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. What do you think, you listeners? Do you think I'm a compulsive gambler? I mean, I know I got a clean bill of health from our last guest, uh, Bert Dragan, but what do you think, David? Do you think I'm compulsive or just obsessive or or what? Well, you, you kind of walk that fine line. I guess if you weren't a writer about it or did a radio show about it, I guess you wouldn't think about poker until you're playing it, right? Or right. Is that, no, 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 no. Even before I wrote, I mean, I would pl- think about the games. If, do you dream about it and then wake up and you know think about, am I in the poker room or anything like that? I've or? never woken up and thought I was in the middle of a poker hand, no. I have dreamt about poker, but I've dreamt about a lot of things. If, <laughs> if we look at what I dream about, that I don't think is a topic for discussion, but... I think I am an obsessive person, and if I played golf, I'd think about going golfing. I think about travel. I think about a lot of stuff. But well, is the most important question is, do you feel that you're a compulsive gambler? Um, no, I certainly don't. I don't think that, in fact, if anything, I don't think I'm enough of a gambler to be as successful as a poker player as I might be, because I don't like the gamble. I don't like the money riding. I don't like the unsure things. I like sure things. So and you so, don't get that thrill of no, right I get, before the cards are turned over? No, or? no. I get, I mean... That's I, a good sign. A good sign, I suppose. But anyway, it was uh, interesting to have him on, and uh, I'd be interested in what our listeners think, if any of our listeners found that they... Uh, I, I like the questions that we didn't get to, which is, have you ever committed a crime so that you could gamble? <laughs> have you ever killed anybody in order to uh, collect a debt? But well, All right, so that ends the show. I'll, I'll come back next week, listeners, and uh, goodbye and good luck. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.